Hello, and welcome to Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with filmmaker Dawn Porter about her new documentary, Good Trouble. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host, from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKeek. In 2014, a film came out called Selma, which, as the title suggests, talked about the civil rights uh, movement that sprang up in Selma, Alabama, in the 1950s. At the 2015 Academy Awards, it was nominated for and received several awards, including Best Original Song. In 2019, uh, as Green Book was being nominated, another civil rights movie that has recently uh, come under fire for it being from a white man's perspective, um, when that film was introduced uh, for Best Picture, because they show all the clips um, of the films that are nominated, of the Best Picture nominees, uh, it was presented by the great actress Amanda Sternberg and Congressman John Lewis, who was on the bridge in Selma in 1955. He received a standing ovation. Congressman Lewis, at, in at the end of 2019, what people didn't know was that he had been diagnosed with aggressive pancreatic cancer. So he's fighting for something else, something new. But he's long been heralded not only for his work as a congressman, but also as a great speaker civil rights activist and icon. And he is the subject of a fantastic new documentary called John Lewis, Good Trouble. It is directed by Don Porter. I had the privilege of speaking with Don back in 2016 about her previous documentary, Trapped, uh, which looked at the ever-restrictive abortion laws, um, primarily in the southern U.S., but, but all over the states. Uh, other of, More of Dawn's credits include the documentary Gideon's Army, Spies of Mississippi, and Rise, The Promise of My Brother's Keeper. She's also worked on a TV miniseries called Bobby Kenny, Kennedy, excuse me, for president. She also uh, has another film coming up 
about Pete Souza. Good Trouble, or John Lewis, Good Trouble, is being released today, July 3rd. And as well as Congressman Lewis, the film features interviews with a whole host of politicians, both new and old, including Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez, Hillary Clinton, Cory Booker, Nancy Pelosi, the late, great Elijah Cummings, among others. I spoke with Don just over a month ago when the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests had just started to spring up. It was only a week or so after Floyd was killed. We, we, Sometimes you you tape interviews earlier and then you, and then you hold them um, for a later date, just you know, based on availability of you know when when your guest is available and 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 when whatever they're promoting um, is is being released. So I, I spoke with her back in June, just uh, when everything was in its infancy in, in terms of uh, the conversations that we that we are having right now. Uh, about these issues. Uh, so you might not hear um, as much information about that because the movement has obviously expanded a lot since then. Um, and, and we also talk about, you know, the senator and, and, and how he's doing, um, especially in times like this, not only because of the quarantine, um, but his own health. Uh, and also, you know, his his message um, to the protesters. So uh, without further ado, this is my conversation with Don Porter. No, it's okay. Don Porter, hello. How are you holding up in, uh, in quarantine? Uh, we're doing okay. You know, I'm here with my teenagers, and uh, so there's that. And then uh, my husband, so there's that. <laughs> no, um, but we're we're fine. Uh, we live, we're in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. So we're kind of in a house in the woods, backs up to a bunch of trails so we can get outside. And that's helped a lot, um, you know, with pandemic. Um, can't do anything about the virulent racism in America, but uh, <laughs> pandemic wise, we're managing is, you know, pretty well, we're, we're lucky that way. Yeah, I hear you. You know, I'm sort of I'm on an island too, so I think being out in nature is is good for this time. How do you? Are you in you... Vancouver Island? Uh, yeah, Vancouver Island. Yeah, so uh, Victoria. Yeah, no, I love Vancouver Island. We've been. My cousin lives there, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's, and we're actually doing pretty well. We have, I think, one of the lowest cases in Canada. So. Yeah. So. Those islands, man. Yep. <laughs> I got it. You know, it's uh. We've only, I think we only had five new cases the other day and no new deaths, so we were starting to reopen a bit, which is nice. It is nice. Yeah, well, hope that continues. Uh, so you have a new film out, uh, Good Trouble. Yes. Which is a profile of the great uh, Congressman John Lewis. Uh, yeah. What made you want to tell his story, or, or at least a, a profile about him? 
You know, um, I knew what a lot of people know about John Lewis, um, which is, you know, that kind of iconic footage of him on the bridge being beaten by police officers. I was less aware that he was one of the original Freedom Riders, um, and then still less aware of all of his legislative activity and how, what a leader he was in the civil rights movement. And um, so CNN came to me, they'd had a lot of success with their RBG documentary. So I think they were kind of in the market for inspiring 80 year olds. <laughs> so I'm thinking of it like a trilogy, you know, like I know the filmmakers from RBG really well. And um, uh, I loved, you know, love their film. Um, but so for John Lewis, I kind of wanted to, talk about things you don't always see in his life. So, you know, we know that he was brave on that bridge, but people don't know that it took, it was years of planning that march. That was not a spontaneous march, um, which is not to take away from spontaneous marches, which are also necessary, but this wasn't that. This was a really deliberate strategy by 19 year olds. <laughs> they were, he was 19 going to church basements every week and meeting with fellow students. Um, and you know, kids get a lot of, I'm the mother of teenagers, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but kids get a lot of, you know, kind of not respect for being, and, and you know, you look and see what these teenagers did. They did something that the grownups hadn't been able to do yet. So, um, so I wanted to, to kind of fill in some pieces of his life and show that, you know, leaders are made, not born. Um, and he, he, you know, he seized opportunities, but he also made opportunities um, to, to do what he's done for himself and for, for all of us, you know? You know, you, you mentioned he was only 19. And I think even today, we see that a lot of real change is driven by, by young people a lot. Um, Absolutely. What what is it about you know young people you know whether it's millennials or or even Gen Gen Z that are able to push for change in a way perhaps the older generations can't? You know I think that there is a purity of purpose. You know I think that um, so yesterday my I, I have an eighteen year old a sixteen year old and a husband whose age shall not be revealed um, and. Uh, we went to a vigil protest, you know, about the situation with George Floyd and police violence is happening here. We went to it. And then today I read in the newspaper that it was organized by a 15 year old and she didn't wait for somebody to give her permission to do it. She just did it. And we all showed up. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what it was like for those civil rights folks you know, they, John uh, Lewis told me a story about going to see Thurgood Marshall and Thurgood Marshall said, you know, just give it to me. Let me, you know, work in the courts, which was incredibly necessary. What Thurgood Marshall did, famous Supreme Court justice, but it was also necessary what those students did, which is they insisted that, that you pay attention to what they were asking. Um, and so I think that there is something about being young where you're not waiting for permission all the time. And um, sometimes that's kind of a good thing. You know, John 
always preaches this message of nonviolence. And, yeah. you know, with a lot of the protests we're seeing today, there, there have been some mm-hmm. violent incidences. What do you think his message would be? And I know he, I think he released something a couple of days ago, but yeah. what do you think his message would be to, to those who are, who are protesting the, the George Floyd situation right now? Um, you know, and um, obviously I can't speak for him. Um, and he did release this statement, but I, I'm pretty positive. He's always a hundred percent behind people who want to use their voice to speak. He thinks protest taking to the streets is absolutely a hundred percent necessary to preserve our democracy. And, you know, I was speaking with a friend this morning and she made a, a really important point, which is Criminals are always amongst us, right? <laughs> when we don't have a pandemic and there's not, you know, nationwide, for American nation, unrest, um, there are still people who will take advantage and who will break our civil compact. So those people aren't going away during our crisis. It's just that their actions are, you know, kind of blended, they, they kind of manifest in a different way. So I, I think, um, I understand, and I think the congressman deeply understands the rage and anger and helplessness, you know, and I think people are not really focusing on the helplessness. If you look at this confluence of events, we have the same people who have first to lose their jobs, are getting the sickest, are the last to have any economic relief, are trapped in their homes unless they're being asked to be first line, you know, service workers and hospital attendants and janitors and all the rest of it. And then you're still getting murdered by the police. You know, what do you think is going to happen? People are mad. People are frustrated. And, you know, this is a time when there's not, there aren't some clear answers and we, we do not have a leader. We do not have an empathetic, capable leader in the United States. And, and so that, as you see, is just a recipe for disaster. So leaders do matter. Um, I think it's probably a frustration to the congressman that he's not able to be out in public, you know, kind of reminding people of seeing the importance of seeing the long term, you know, burning something down is like scratching a mosquito bite in some ways, you know, it feels good in the moment to release but we need lasting improvements for so many people. We don't, um, you know, you can understand the rage and not participate in it. So. On, on that note, I don't know if you've talked to him recently, but how's he doing? I know, I know he's having a bit of a health battle right now. Um, he, so he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer um and that is uh he's been undergoing chemotherapy treatments um he's been tolerating them well he is uh so he's okay you know i mean um my friend says it's like farm stock you know like he's just like a really strong guy um i think he's motivated to um he wants to get back to work You know, he wants, his work is very much a part of his life and he is fueled by, um, you know, combating all the injustices. So I think he wants to get back to work. So um, I think considering he's doing really well. So yeah, I'm in regular contact with his 
main caregiver, um, spoke to him. My parents bring him food. So they all live in Washington, DC. <laughs> so um, he's, he's okay. Yeah. You, you chat with a lot of uh, past and present politicians for this. You know, you've got AOC, Hillary, uh, Speaker Pelosi. I know there was even a couple of Republicans in there. Mm-hmm. Given that the congressman is such a, a respected figure, was it easy for you to get all these people to talk and to talk on camera for this project about him? Yes. <laughs> it was some of the easiest asks um, uh, ever. So many people, Speaker Pelosi, like reserved us this very fancy room in the Capitol. Um, Cory Booker was calling us to say, when can I speak? Um, some of the most uh, meaningful conversations for me were with the new members of Congress. So with Ayanna Presley, um, with uh, AOC, and they, um, you know, they're, they're the new voice, right? They are part of the generation that's going to take us into the future, we hope. And they, they really, though, spoke with such admiration for his leadership. He met with them privately um, to talk about leadership, to talk about the Congress. And of course, as a filmmaker, I was dying that we could not get a camera in there, but um, I understand from all involved that it was amazing and it would have been an amazing moment for a film, but whatevs. Um, so, um, but seeing the broad spectrum of people who you know, all of us, you know, on the outside, we know him as a historical figure or a famous figure, but they, they work with him. That's their coworker. And to have them one after another say such similar things about his generosity, his um, intelligence, his strategy um, was, was really, um, you know, moving for me. And um, you know, as a, as a documentary person, we 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 jump into something, and so you know, part of our job is to make sure that whatever we're filming in the snapshot is really representative of the person's character, is worth including because we all have bad days, right? If I film you on a bad day when you're hungry and you're sleep, you know, deprived or whatever it's not gonna be the same you as if you're having a great day and your hair looks great, you know? <laughs> so, um, so what we look for are um, similarities in what people say about a person. That's what I look for. And person after person spoke about his kindness, his empathy, his generosity, person after person. And they weren't talking about history books they read. They were talking about speaking with him every day. And, and so that was, you know, really made a big impact to me. On that note, you know, the film is about a politician, but how do you walk that line between creating a profile and not trying to get too overly political with everything, especially considering the climate that we're in right now? You know, um, I think there's, there's didactic, you know, there's lecturing. <laughs> And then there's political. I can definitely consider myself political, but I also consider myself fair. And so it's important that our documented record speak some form of truth and not, you know, I can tell you my opinion, but why would you care about my opinion? (laughs) 
you know? Um, and so I think it's important. And that's why I kind of went back and forth between archive images, but, you know, we, we used more archive than, um, you know, we used some archive that even the congressman had not seen before. And the purpose of, an, you know, and then there were those, there were some, there were seminal moments that you know about. John Lewis on the bridge, John Lewis maybe in the buses. And what I wanted to do is kind of back that up to how did he get to that bridge? How did he get to that bus? Um, and so we included things like the training videos that show him being educated by, you know, pacifists. And when you understand his character, then it, it kind of all makes sense, right? If he believes so deeply in nonviolence as a, as a young person, that is the way that he has always behaved. And that helps you understand him today. So, um, you know, this film is, um, I, I think it is political in that it is a rebuke to the United States current president. It is a rebuke to that kind of um, unethical, immoral leadership that we see today. And this is an example of someone who is the exact opposite, who reflects the values of, I hope, more Americans. You, you mentioned the archive, archival footage and some of which he, he's never seen. Talk about the moment when, you know, you're, you're observing him watching this footage for the first time. What, what was that all like? That was fantastic. That was one of the best film moments I'll ever have. So we had been to um, filming with him at a long trip in Alabama where we went to the Civil Rights Museum, Brian Stevenson Civil Rights Museum in Montgomery, which I highly recommend to you. It's a astounding collection of, of footage and stories and archive and the congressman was watching an exhibit that was like basically about him <laughs> and he was watching it and as he's watching it um he turned to another museum guest who was a teenager and he said sometimes i can't believe that's me and he started telling a story about that day that i had never heard him tell before and I thought, this is the way to bring him back to some of those moments that he experienced, that there are so many moments that he's forgotten them. There's so many. So I had my wonderful archivist, Rich Remsberg, and my spectacular editor, Jessica Congdon. And what we did is we created a kind of mini movie for him of archive, of archival sequences. And we rented a studio in Washington, D.C., we brought him in, we turned all the lights down, we put three screens around him. And so he was surrounded with these images. It was kind of like a poor woman's 3D experience, you know? Um, and so he, he started telling us stories about his life and about being there. And then at one point he said, I'm seeing footage I've never seen. And so it was very emotional but I, I hope for him that it helped him see himself the way we see him. Like this is why people are coming up to you in the airport because we cannot believe that this young man just constantly and consistently did the right thing. It, it's just, it's almost too hard to believe. It's like a movie. <laughs> you know, two of the people that are featured in the archival footage are Dr. King 
yeah. and, and Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. How how would you compare the congressman to those two icons, and how do you think he would compare himself to those two? Um, that's a, a great question. I know that he deeply admired Dr. King, um, his, uh, you know, instrument, his voice. Um, I think he, in some ways, modeled himself after him. You know, you notice the student demonstrators were always well-dressed. They were always dressed up. And uh, I know that he really he wanted to, you know, kind of follow in those footsteps. At one point he wanted to be a preacher. Um, but I think in some ways he was, he was even more radical than Dr. King in some ways. So I kind of would place him between Malcolm and Martin. You know, I would say that John Lewis is a connection. You know, if, if Malcolm and Martin had a son together, I think it would be John Lewis. <laughs> Um, so I love that question because, you know, I, I, I don't know what he thinks about Malcolm. I don't remember. I'm sure it's in his book, but I'm not remembering today. Um, but my guess, my educated guess would be that he would admire Malcolm's boldness, but he would disagree with his stated method, you know, that he would not, he, he really does draw the line at any kind of, um, resistance any kind of physical resistance, so. You know, the, the congressman's from rural Alabama. He represents Georgia. Does he embody not only the, the Southern identity, but perhaps the Black Southern identity in the United States today? And what do you think that is? Oof. Um, you know, I, I'm from the North. So I don't know that I can really speak to a black Southern identity today. Um, I think he certainly, the Congressman certainly comes from a tradition out of the South that is religious, um, that is uh, focused on family and community, um, but is also um, welcoming and hospitable. John Lewis is extremely hospitable. <laughs> And there is something to Southern manners in the Black community that is, that I have always admired. Um, and, you know, my personal opinion, a Southerner will get you to where you want to, where they want to go without you realizing they've led you. <laughs> a Northerner, I'm from New York City. We just go and <laughs> we, you know, we're like, they'll catch up. Um, but a Southerner will get you there, you know, will bring you along. We think Bill Clinton, like how people get you along, you know? And, um, and I think that John Lewis does embody that is, is he and I might be saying the same thing, but it goes down a little sweeter when he says it. <laughs> uh, you know, just, just from a, a filmmaking perspective, I know your last sort of big feature uh, Trapped came out in 2016, and he worked on a couple of projects in, in 2017 and 2018. You know, mm -hmm. it is short and, and some TV things. But how how long did this sort of project take you from beginning to end? Because I've talked with filmmakers that have, you know, stayed with the project five, six, seven, eight, nine years, and then there are other documentaries yeah. that, that do a year. What was this one like for you? This one was really fast. It was about two years. Um, 
And part of it is we really wanted it to come out in this moment, the, the you know, confluence of events. Well, we didn't know that this moment would be this moment. I should stop there. But what we were thinking more is examples of honorable leadership with integrity was th that was what I wanted to be part of the conversation before this presidential election. So we were aiming for this moment. Um, you know, I think that films really do benefit from time. So I wish I had more time, um, but I, I really enjoyed working. The story that we wanted to tell was his life is so well lived and so well documented. The only thing I would, you know, selfishly like is more time with him just right. because it's fun. <laughs> what? I mean, you've, you know, your your last film focused on Planned Parenthood and abortion, and, you know, you've made films on several different subjects. What attracts you to any given subject for a film? I think, you know, I mean, for me, I, I have to be like a little bit obsessed with it, you know, like just turn it over and look at it this way and look at it that way. And... So, you know, Gideon's Army, my film about public defenders, I'm a lawyer and I was so interested in, these were lawyers unlike the lawyers most people see. And for abortion providers, I was really fascinated by finding this character who did not seem to fit. You know, an African-American doctor, evangelical from the South <laughs> is not what you think of. I don't know what you think of when you think of an abortion provider, but he's not it. Um, but also, you know, the trapped was so much about um, the dismantling of a legislative history in the United States. And sure enough, that is the same path that dismantling voting rights has taken. So, you know, that's also the story of John Lewis is how over time his legacy of voting rights for which you know he and so many others fought so hard is being dismantled and a lot of that goes back to efforts by the same groups you know the same anti-choice groups are also usually anti not just not even expansion of the voting of voting but elimination of voting for some people so um so i i like films where there's like if you turn it upside down, you see something else. And I like that process of turning things upside down and around and um, trying to fill in some of the gaps. One thing that really struck me about the film, which is not often when I watch a documentary, is the soundtrack, um, specifically <laughs> the, the Negro spirituals. Yeah. You know, when you, when you watch a documentary, you don't necessarily watch it for the soundtrack, but I think that really encapsulates what Congressman Lewis is all about. Uh, how, what was the process like for you constructing the soundtrack and, and that part of the film? I'm so, so glad you asked that. The composer for the film is a composer named Tamara Kali. I was actually on a Zoom with her today because I'm talking about something else with her. Um, so I asked her to write a Negro spiritual, like, and that was going to be our kind of, so she really, she's from the South originally. She lives in Brooklyn, but her roots are in South Carolina. 
And she just ran with that. I mean, she <laughs> gathered a full orchestra. She sings on this score. Um, she plays instruments. She hired all the, you know, other instrumentalists. But really what I think is unique about this score, and I'm so glad that it came through for you, is you can listen to it from start to finish because it really is a journey from his life as a young person, outsider activist, you know, to kind of a, a peak and then to, he's now the person writing the laws that he was once trying to, to change, right? So, um, so she really, I really appreciated her approach, which was not as much cue by cue as writing a full score start to finish so that you have this musical emotional journey as you go through and one of the the highlights you know sometimes i just hum music from from the film even though i haven't seen it for a while um she went back to there are these folk recordings there she calls them field hollers and she went back and re-recorded them with with modern musicians and i just thought that that was a brilliant thing to do because the story of John Lewis and you asked about the story of Southern, you know, African-Americans is often so much about the land and the connection to a place. And if there's one thing that I think a lot of Southerners have that Northern people do not necessarily is this experience of land and of home. So John Lewis always had some place to go back to. If this whole civil rights business didn't work out, he could go home. His family had a hundred acres. Uh, but they also, you know, you need that support. You, we all need that place to retreat to. And he had that. So I don't know that he would say that, but I definitely saw that. I, you know, we, we, that's why we have his sisters and we took him back to his, uh, you know, the place where his people are. He knows where his people are. And that gives you a really strong sense of self and fortitude when you have to go do really difficult things. It, it strikes me that that kind of music is almost emblematic of at least the Black American experience because a lot of at least modern music or at least rock and blues, it all goes back to Robert Johnson. Um, mm -hmm. What is it about that music, uh, you know, whether it's gospel or, or, or mm -hmm. spirituals, that came to, to represent a certain type of life or, or lifestyle within the US? Well, I think there's, there's, an, there's nothing constructed about that music. It feels very authentic. It feels, um, you know, the brilliance of that music is it replicates the feeling of your soul. <laughs> it replicates the feeling of your, of your heart. And so it's accessible for, you know, for everyone. Um, so, you know, John Lewis, the music was so important in this movie because um, he would talk to me about how the music was so important to the movement and how, you know, when they were in jail, they would, as we, we have a scene in the movie where, you know, the singer, I actually for a while thought of opening the movie with her beautiful song. Um, because it is at once um, plaintive, but it is also comforting. And I think, you know, th the students, when they were arrested, there's, there's you know, a scene where the narrator um, of this little piece of footage says, 
one by one, the students were arrested and asked to pay a fine or go to jail. And they all chose jail. You know, I mean, think about that. <laughs> if you get arrested, you're trying to get out of jail. They all chose jail. And the way that they, and it was not easy. It was not club fed. I mean, they were beaten. They, some of them were starved. They were, you know, they were cold. They were sleeping in mattresses on the floor. And so what did they do? They sang to each other. It's just such a deeply human reminder of your humanity. It's a reminder that you're not alone. It's a warning. Don't lose your cool, you know, stay alive, live to sing another day. So the music was, was uh, really, really important. And I, and I think to your, to your point, to your question, um, there's just something kind of universally human about it. Um, it is connecting rather than off-putting. One aspect I noticed about the congressman is the way he speaks. You know, o Obama was got a lot of praise for his oratorical skills, and I feel uh, con the congressman is is the same way. Is that part of what what makes him so appealing? Um, is is the way he's able to communicate and get his message across? Mm -hmm. um, I think that it is, you know, and so many people um, who know John Lewis will say he, he's angry or he's so powerful and he is that. Um, and I think he speaks with passion and he demands to be heard. Um, but in person, he's extremely soft-spoken. I mean, He's so quiet. Like if you don't pay attention, you'll miss his jokes, you know, like, and he's just like rapid fire. Um, interesting. So um, I think I have to go soon. Um, I think I've, yeah, <laughs> I think I've missed something. Um, All right. Well, we can. Uh... Hang on. Hang on one second. Let me just check because I'm really enjoying talking to you. <laughs> well, if you got to go, you got to go, you know. Um, okay, yes, I think I am supposed to, I'm supposed to dial into something. So, all right. Um, into that. Well, um, this was so much fun. I'm glad we, I'm glad yes, you hung but, in there and we but, worked it out. All the, 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 the technical mishaps. It's, it's the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, Zoom just updated, so there's new things going on all the time. And I got a new, yeah, screen, and I was like, what is this? I just learned how to do the other one. Why are you changing it? So. Yeah, and I feel bad that I had a typo with my password. That's fine. All good. Well, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you run off to your, to your next interview, but uh, Good Trouble is premiering uh, first week of July, yes? First week of July, yes, July 3rd. July 3rd. Well, uh, I encourage all the, the listeners to go and see it when it comes out. Uh, Don Porter, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. We'll okay. talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with filmmaker Don Porter. Her new film, John Lewis, Good Trouble, is out today. July 3rd. Watch it. It's a really, really good film. Uh, a profile of a really, really great man. That does it 
for me today. Thanks for tuning in. And I will see you next time. Goodbye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>